guys. Thank you for tuning in today. This is episode number 269 of the Hunt Back Country podcast. And our guest is Jared Lyle from The Hunt and Fool. We speak with Jared about tag acquisition, putting in for draws, collecting preference points, and all those related topics, which is obviously timely for this time of year because we're in the midst of application season. Some have come and gone. Some deadlines are still yet to come in the following weeks. And that's why we're putting this episode out right now. We actually just recorded it this morning. So this is fresh and timely. Not only do we talk about current topics and current draws, we kind of explain the framework. So for guys who are newer, we talk about, for example, the differences between bonus points and preference points and what that means for you as the hunter applying for tags. We talk about point creep and why that's a problem. We even look ahead to the future and talk about some of the changes that may need to be made because clearly in some states and for some species, points are just not worth it. Like it's an unattainable broken system. And we talk through those topics and discuss a little bit of what the future may look like there. So there's a lot to be covered in this podcast and we thank you guys for tuning in. I know that whether you are a seasoned veteran who's been collecting points for years or even decades, or you are a brand new hunter who's just getting into the game and trying to understand how to get tags out west, something in this podcast is going to help you. So thanks again for tuning in. As always, you can reach us by email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. But for now, let's dive right into this conversation with Jared from The Hunting Fool. Well, Jared, it's uh, good to chat with you today. I was um, actually not fully aware of your background until we scheduled this podcast and I knew of you with Hunting Fool. I didn't know from your background that you're actually with Trophy Taker for quite a long time. Um, but yeah, to kick us off, tell us a little bit about your personal history, background, work in the industry, things like that. Yeah, you bet. No, I was pretty fortunate. I got, I was raised by two parents that in today's standards would just be uh, nomad gypsies, for lack of a better term. My dad always was chasing some dream somewhere. We lived everywhere from Alaska to Nebraska growing up in wall tents and camp trailers and pickup bed campers trapping coyotes and bobcats all the way up to Alaska, you know, running wolf trap lines on boats and living on float houses with no power, no running water for a year or more at a time. So, wow. My parents got me kicked off with a good sense of adventure, my sister and I both um, early on. And then, you know, that's kind of carried over into my career. I've kind of been all over the place. I I logged and commercial fished early on in my life, uh, commercial fished in Alaska on a, on a gill netter in Bristol Bay and logged. And then uh, my wife and I worked for seven years at a youth ranch for troubled teens, a uh, residential treatment facility for the kids that get kicked out of everybody else's lives. Um, and that was really awesome. And then, uh, and then I took that job at Trophy Taker. I was there for 14 years as a general manager and got introduced to the outdoor industry, which I immediately fell in love with. I think we have the best people in the world to work with. You know, there's always a few scallywags in every industry, but <laughs> for the most part, you know, the hunting space, and I'm sure you guys are well aware of this doing what you do too. We've got wonderful people to work with both yeah. at the brand level all the way down to the consumer level. So fell in love with that. Um, meanwhile, I started applying out of state when I could not afford it. Um, I was probably 21, 22 years old. Yeah, probably, probably right around there when I sold my first pile of shed antlers and, and applied in Arizona for the famous Arizona archery elk draw. And, uh, I couldn't afford it for most of my life, honestly, most of the first half of my life, honestly, but I also realized that there were some long-term strategies I wanted to pursue and some opportunities I wanted to acquire. 
So during that time, I actually stumbled into Hunt and Fool um, as a consumer. Uh, my my good friend and boss at Trophy Taker, Dan Evans, uh, a mighty elk slayer in his own right for sure. Absolutely. He, he leaned on Hunt and Fool greatly, shared it with me. And so I've been a member for going on 20 years now of the Hunt and Fool service. And uh, it's largely due, well, it's 100% due to where I am today. Um, I spent enough time visiting with Garth Carter over the years, the founder of the company, to know that I was passionate about the knowledge, the research, and helping other people kind of sort through the garbage of, you know, 20 plus different state draw systems. Mm-hmm. And so about four and a half years ago or so, I reached out. Um, we were about to sell a portion of Trophy Taker. And I reached out to Hunt and Fool and they had an opportunity and it turned into an even bigger opportunity. They, they invited me to be CEO. And I think I've had that hat on now for about three and a half years. Well, that's awesome. Cool, man. It's quite the background. Um, I'm sure we could probably talk for an hour just about stories from that. But uh, yeah, before we get derailed and start helping hunters here, we'll probably get going. Um, with hunting full, you know, my, uh, my background context there is limited. I've been aware of hunting full and the magazine and things like that for years, but haven't personally engaged with things too much. And I'm probably ignorant to what all you guys actually do and what you offer. Um, again, the magazine's been part of that for a long time. Obviously with the digital age, there's more and more tools and online resources and you guys have your own podcasts and uh, personal hunt advisors and all kinds of stuff. So like from a umbrella perspective, like what are some of the tentacles of hunting full and what they have to offer hunters? And, you know, we're not doing this as a sales pitch. I'm genuinely personally curious because I don't think I understand everything that you guys offer. Yeah, no, I mean, I appreciate it the opportunity to talk about the company anytime I get it. So I'll take it. <laughs> um, but, you know, first and foremost, we're a membership organization have been since we started 25 years ago. So, you know, none of our publications are shared on newsstands or sold, you know, direct outside of the membership umbrella. And our publication has grown from a, you know, a three page uh, stapled in the corner uh pamphlet to 140 page average perfect bound beautiful coffee table worthy publication and it's it's essentially a two-part publication i tell people all the time when they're interested in membership half the year we tell people about hunts that they probably aren't going to get this year and that they need to have a long-term strategy for and the other half of the year we try to tell people how they should go hunting every single year Um, So six months out of the year, December through June, our publication closely follows the open and available draw periods in each state. Um, So for example, right now, our February issue has New Mexico, Oregon, and Utah in it because all three of those draw periods are now effectively, right? Or at least we have the, the big game proclamations out for those states and can help hunters navigate those. The other half of the year, we try to talk about states that have easier to acquire opportunities, either leftover tags, tags you can draw as a second choice, um, OTC tags, which unfortunately are becoming very scarce. Um, but we, nonetheless, we invest a, a half of our publication time in telling people don't wait 20 years to go hunting, go hunting every year. Um, so that's kind of the cornerstone. And then off of that, you know, we try to I mean, if you distill us down into a mission statement, I always say that we're, we exist to equip our members to go on more hunts with better information. Like 
that's who we are. That's what we exist to do. So that might be gear recommendations. That might be outfitter recommendations. Um, that's going to be, we also manage a database, a 20 plus year old database of hunting fool members who have drawn good tags in the past. And when you get lucky enough to draw that same tag, we connect you together. Um, it's a voluntary system, of course, but anybody who requests this list opts in as a participant in the list. So let's say you finally draw like a 16D second season archery elk tag in New Mexico. I can send you a dozen to 20 different contacts that have hunted that hunt before. And you can reach out to them via cell or email and start planning your hunt with real boots on the ground experience. So again, you know, to distill it, we really just exist to equip our hunters to go on more hunts with the best information available. Yeah, that's awesome, man. We, uh, I think part of my ignorance is I've always thought of, uh, you know, some of the hunting full offerings as trophy specific or maybe like outfitter and guide connections and things like that. But we were just chatting even before the podcast about the, the big part of your membership really is guys like me who are hunting over the counter, um, or not over the counter, but hunting DIY and looking as much for opportunity as they are necessarily trying to, as you touched on, not wait 20 years, but really just like, what's a good plan to like get opportunity now and this year and next year. Um, and at the same time, play the long game. So maybe just touch on that of guys are hearing this and they're limited on time, budget, things like that. Like, hunting foals still sounds applicable for them, right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, uh, probably 80% of our membership is focused on DIY hunts. And then at, at least a large portion of that 80% is also focused on just wanting to go hunting every single year. I mean, I do think there's a little bit of a misconception out there. I think the vast majority of hunters, if there's a big, a bigger, more mature animal standing next to a younger, less mature animal. They're all going to shoot the the bigger animal. You know I mean? Uh, you get, you get in pissy matches over that. I don't know if I can say that on your podcast or not, but oh, yeah. uh, <laughs> the hunting community gets in, you know, spitting matches over that a little bit at times. And I think at the end of the day, most of us would prefer to, you know, kill a great big bull elk with our bow or something like that. So we focus there, right? We talk about trophy a lot throughout the publication, but we also talk about the fact that, you know, those opportunities are getting leaner and leaner and leaner. And we really think that you should be spending the most time you can out in the field, making memories with friends and family because life is short. Yeah. So, um, you know, probably 80% of our clients are more in the DIY space. And then the majority of them like I said, are, are just looking for opportunities. And then, you know, one thing I didn't touch on that Huntful does, we have a whole business within a business here where we manage people's out-of-state application. We call it our license application department. You know, and we've got probably 15 to 20% of our total clients that we do that for. The other 80%, again, manage it all on their own. So again, our publication is dedicated to DIY in two senses. One, go hunting on your own. Um, we'll help you figure it out. And two, create your own application strategy and we'll help you fill in the blanks on how to do that too. Yeah. So this conversation, uh, part of what Steve and I wanted to tackle and really pulling your expertise on is breaking down applications and draws and really giving guys information to help them uh, create a strategy to make a plan. And that's not to say that we're going to get on this podcast and talk through every species in every state and 
you know, what to apply for and how to apply. Like that's that's impossible to do in a podcast, but I want to give guys some good information and even for newer hunters, like just help them sort through like even understanding processes as we talk about things like points and things like that. Um, let's just kick things off there. Um, as we start to talk and look at different states and, you know, focusing on Western states for species like deer, elk, bear, sheep, antelope, there's exotics in there and all that. We do look at the Western landscape of hunting. There's difference. Uh, every state does things differently and sometimes things work for different species in different ways within a state. But explain, just base framework, explain the idea first of points. And by that, some states do bonus points, some do preference points, some square points, we don't have to hit every state and what their system is, but just kind of lay that framework as we start to talk about draws and points. Perfect. Yeah. No, there's essentially four different draw systems, right? There's a true random draw, which has no points whatsoever. And you've got states like Idaho, um, New Mexico, Alaska that follow that, that system. You know, every single year it's random. Everybody goes in with the same amount of chances um, as the, as the, their predecessors do. <clears throat> then there's bonus points, preference points, and hybrid draws are the other three. And the way to think about a bonus point draw is you're just getting extra names in the hat. So every year that I acquire another point, I may get one point, one additional chance to draw that super low number that gets me a tag before my competitor does in the draw pool. And granted, there's some nuances to that. States like Nevada and Montana square those bonus points. It's still a true bonus point system, but they square your points. So if you've been in it 10 years, you get 100 chances, right? Um, Other states, it's just one-to-one. You're in there 10 years, you get 10 extra chances to draw that low number. Then a preference point draw truly means what it says. You get preference in the draw when you have points or enough points to acquire said tag. And a lot of people misunderstand that. I hear a lot of people like Colorado deer, for example, is a true preference draw. And I hear people be like, well, I'll just throw my name in the hat for the toughest tag in the state. It takes 26 points to draw, but maybe I'll get lucky. The answer is no, you won't get lucky unless you have 26 points. Um, Colorado is going to take your donation. Thank you very much. Pat you on the back and burn it and throw it in the trash. <laughs> so, you know, in a true preference draw, you have to understand that unless you have enough points to earn the right to compete with the top point holders and the, and the number of tags available at that point level, you're, you don't count. And then there's hybrid draws and hybrid draws can consist of either a bonus point system that's managed with a preference slant for a certain number of tags so Utah and Arizona would fit that bill where it's a, they're, they're called bonus points. They're treated like bonus points, except that there's a handful of tags that are set aside for max point holders, much like a preference draw would be. And then there's true hybrid draws that are all preference points like Wyoming, where 75% of their tags are allocated to preference drawing and 25% are true random drawing irregardless of your preference point. So those are the four systems, random, bonus, preference, and hybrid. And then um, everything kind of builds off of that. Gotcha. Um, this is like probably a very unfair question, but I'd like, like to ask it anyway. <laughs> How do you personally feel about point systems and like do you have a preference on yeah i think this is the best way to go and uh, maybe the answer is it's good that different states do different things um but 
you know, just even personally, like, would you say, man, I, I kind of wish everything was just random draw or I kind of wish it was hybrid like Wyoming where, yes, there's preference for some and then some tags are reserved for random draw. Just again, I'm not like asking a strategy question, just a very personal, like, what's your take on what you would do? Yeah, I just, I think that as hunters, as humans, we're selfish, right? I mean, that's one of our number one traits is like, we're really all about us, no matter how altruistic we are. And I think it's dangerous to, to behave that way when we look at our North American conservation model. And points are a byproduct of that. I want to be rewarded for participating long-term for a sheep draw, for example. Um, you know, there's literally a couple hundred non-resident sheep tags available in the entire U.S. on any given year. I'm talking like a couple hundred and we've got what like 13 million hunters in in the U.S. So the reality is just because I'm donating my money to conservation chasing a sheep tag doesn't really entitle me to cripple the next three generations with a point system that becomes unbearable that eventually it's you know now it's 30 points literally in many states it's going to be 60 points in 30 years if nothing happens in those same states so i don't like the point systems that just perpetually grow with no top on them um, and that's going to be very unpopular with a lot of hunting fools listeners. <laughs> um, and, you know, 10 years ago, I probably had a different approach too, because I've been one of those guys that started building points when I was young in a point system that was still fairly, you know, it wasn't super mature yet. And so I've got a lot of opportunity in front of me uh, over the next 10 years. I've got tags left and right that I'm sort of quote unquote guaranteed to draw, assuming that the states don't change it. But short version for me is I prefer a preference point system when there's a lot of tags so that the, the top points can constantly get cleared out, right? Like let's not ever get beyond five, six, seven points, something like that. I like preference draws because everybody's busy and it's hard to plan your schedule. It's hard to go totally random because you never know when you're going to get a tag. You never know if you're going to get two or three tags right. and have too much on your plate. So a preference draw is a nice way to let people manage their planning. It's good for outfitters. It's good for landowners, et cetera, if and only if there's a lot of tags. Like a state like Montana has 17,000 non-resident tags in their, in their, excuse me, in their quota. Um, it, genuinely, Montana can continue to purge all of their top point holders in, in you know, one to three years to just get the big game combo license in Montana. I'm not talking about limited entry, special draw permits. I'm just talking about an elk tag that I can go hunt 60% of the state of Montana. That's, that's a general season allocation. Right. So I like preference in that case. I know I'm getting kind of long winded on you. I apologize. No, this is all good. It, it's kind of a complicated answer. Um, again, I would say if there's a lot of tags, then a preference draw is kind of a cool way to do it. Even there, I like the way Montana does it for their big game combo licenses and the way Wyoming does it as well, where 75% goes to preference and there's still always a 25% random draw. You know, I've got kids that are in their early 20s now. Um, you know, people 20 years my junior are having kids that are barely being born. I don't think it's fair that they should inherit these encumbered point systems that just basically make it not worth them ever considering trying to apply. Yeah. I feel like the point systems, like the socialism of hunting, right? Like it sounds great and everything. Oh, you mean I guaranteed to get a tag in a few years, but you just 
push this out. And yeah, I mean, it's just all these states are going to have 20, 30, 40 points and it's going to become unrealistic for, for everybody to get tags at some point. My kids are not going to be able to draw, you know, like uh, a good friend of mine, Cody over in Oregon, his kid, like, I mean, he's at 20 some odd points or some of the tags and it's just pointless for him to even start putting his kid in. It's just unrealistic. He'll be able to hunt. Yep. No. And I think probably at some point in time, this conversation will go into sort of like technology and harvest rates and that kind of thing. I don't really want to dive into that yet. I think let's let that organically happen later. But again, it, where I would go with that is we're pretty selfish. You know, A, I want a tag. I want you to guarantee me I'm going to get a tag by playing nice. And B, I want to kill something when I got that tag. Um, <clears throat> and the reality is, is that hunting, um, you know, isn't necessarily guarantee me a, a kill or a harvest. Um, it guarantees me an opportunity. It guarantees me an experience. It guarantees me some memories. It guarantees me some physical and mental health. At least if you can keep your own mental health out of the way in terms of <laughs> letting, letting your lack of success overwhelm you, you know, but the reality is, you know, most Western states that manage for a lot of opportunity for like, let's say archery elk, harvest statistics are down around 12%, right? So basically nine out of 10 people go home without an elk. And, and that's counting cows and spikes and, and immature bulls. If we bumped that to 100%, our opportunity would shrink overnight to almost nothing. Um, so, you know, it needs to be tough. It needs to be hard. It needs to be managed where it's an opportunity and not a guarantee, in my opinion. I haven't thought about it that way, yeah. Yeah, that's good stuff in there. Um so you you basically touched on without us saying that I would call it a buzzword of like point creep, right? So um, that was one thing I just wanted. I, I see people talk about it online. And again, for newer folks who maybe don't understand what that is, or maybe some misinformation about what that is, um, we can get into nuance. But I would say, in general, it's that every year, there's more points required to draw a tag. So as you're building points each year, you're not gaining ground towards the opportunity because the opportunity is getting harder to achieve each year because of point creep, right? Like, is that a, a basic understanding of the issue there that you touched on prior? It is. I think it's important to think about point creep as a ratio uh, more than anything else, because unfortunately, worst case scenario, you would think it'd be one to one, right? So it took nine points to draw this tag this year. It'll take 10 next year. But unfortunately, sometimes it's higher than one-to-one -one because demand shifts around um, for said individual opportunity. Or you got a state like Arizona that's got drought problems. And on a, on a year where all of a sudden, and so a lot of guys are going points only, points only, points only, points only. And you got this big balloon of people that have vast number of points. And then all of a sudden we have a great winner. Everybody's talking about on social media, antler growth is off the charts. Boom, everybody goes in. And all of a sudden a unit that was taken 18 points to draw took 21 overnight, just one year. So you got to think about it a little bit in a ratio. Sometimes it's higher than one-to-one. -one. Sometimes it's truly one-to-one. -one. And in a lot of cases, probably honestly, the majority of cases, it's less than one-to-one. -one. You know, you, I got, I'll use two very clear-cut examples in my own experience. When I started applying for elk in Colorado, um, I was, I don't know, six points below what it took to draw unit 76 for archery elk. And I was like nine points below what it took to draw unit 61 for archery elk, two pretty premier units in Colorado. Well, now I have 17 elk points in Colorado. I can, I can, I'm like three points beyond what it takes to draw 76. I finally caught it and passed it, 
but 61 has stayed a, a, at least one to one ahead of me the entire time. I'll never catch it. So I'm going to have to, you know, quote unquote settle. It's still a great tag, but the point is, you know, you've got to watch how it's creeping as a ratio and 76 wasn't a full one-to-one. That's why I was able to not only make up six years of ground on it, but now kind of move past it because it was, you know, maybe seven tenths of a point a year. It was going up. The point, I think the takeaway is if you're chasing a one-to-one or worse yet, a greater than one-to-one, you're probably wasting your time. Yeah, that's that's me in Wyoming. I, I think I started on the second or third year they started doing points, and that the tag, the elk tag I wanted to get was, yeah, I think it was two points, and I had you know one the first year I applied, and it's now it's twelve points, and I've got eleven points. <laughs> yeah, I'm literally I will never catch it, and now I'm pissed because I've got you know all the you know this fifty dollars or seventy dollars a year whatever the point costs, and I'm like by the time I buy this tag, uh, it's going to be a couple thousand dollar elk tag, and you know it's just. Yeah, it's a unfortunate situation for sure. Yep, yep. No, and you definitely need to see that. And you can, you know, there's different draw odds. You know, I'll do my first shameless plug for Hunt and Fool here. Um, I spend a fortune on getting the best draw odds data possible out there so that people can analyze that. You know, and that's one thing that, you know, if you look at simple draw odds, it's not adequate. Let me use Nevada as a quick example. Nevada really mucks you up because it's a bonus point system and they square your points and they look at five of your choices before they move to the next applicant. So Steve, you're familiar with Idaho's system. Idaho will look at your first choice and only and fill all first choice applicants before they'll ever look at a second choice, right? Not Nevada. They say, not only are we going to square your bonus points and we're a mature system. So they're, they're over 20 points squared. So you've got guys going in with 400 names in the hat. Then they're also going to look at five different choices for that individual before they move on to the next individual. So interpreting those draw odds at face value is impossible. We have to, you have to run thousands of simulations to understand what's really going on and buy full data sets from the States. And I don't do it in-house. We, we have a contractor that does a phenomenal job for us. And, uh, you know, it gives you a more accurate way of plugging in your point level and actually seeing, you know, what does this really look like? And sorting in a preference draw, sorting by the number of points required to draw any given unit, any given species, any given weapon. And that's a super important tool. I can't overstate the importance of that tool at this point in time, if you are going to get into this game so that you aren't just donating your money uh, willy nilly every single year. Yeah, man, what I'm kind of curious on as we talk about different point systems, like take Wyoming, for example, and I don't mean how they do a draw, but how you can get points. It's easy to get points in Wyoming. Like you don't, you don't have to upfront a bunch of money you don't have to apply for a hunt and then, you know, get a point when you're unsuccessful. Like you can basically just go buy a point and it's pretty inexpensive. As a hunter, that sounds great. Are there downsides to that though? Because it is so easy and so accessible that it is more prone to more guys in the game, pushing numbers higher, making tags harder to get. Um, any thoughts on how the process of acquiring points in a state affects you know, downstream, essentially, in terms of opportunity? Uh, yeah, that's a really loaded question, right? Um, <laughs> <laughs> good question, by the way. Um, yeah. I'm just thinking out loud as a hunter. I'm not being, like, strategic on, yeah, trying to put you in a corner. Yeah, no, no, no. I know that. Montana is very similar, too, right? Both of them have a fall points-only period where, you know, five years ago before Montana 
introduced this. I'm, I'm shifting gears on you. I'll come back to Wyoming, I promise. But Montana used to cost you like $200 in non-refundable money to build elk points and deer points in the state. The reason for that is Montana puts you in simultaneously into the big game draw for deer and elk. You don't know it, but they do two draws. The first draw is, hey, did Mark or Steve get lucky and draw an elk tag? And then simultaneously or, or subsequently, but virtually immediately, they say, okay, Steve did get lucky. He drew an elk tag in our great state. And he also put in for the famous Missouri Breaks archery elk tag. So we're going to throw him in the limited entry draw next and then decide whether he gets it or not. Now, if Steve didn't get lucky in years past, he, uh, he could get a refund back from Montana for 80% of the thousand bucks he spent. So it cost him $200 non-refundable to build that elk point. So then Montana says, that's not the best idea. So now you can build them in the points only period for $25 each. Um, I think that's better because I think that states tend to, at least to some extent, abuse the non-resident dollar anyway. You know, non-residents in on average produce 60 to 80 plus percent of the revenue in any given state big game system. So it was pretty egregious to take $200 of Steve's money to build an elk point. So, you know, again, it's a tough question because so I come back to Wyoming in the same regard where, you know, I kind of like the idea of being able to build points only um, and do it fairly economically. But again, I'm only a fan of point systems in draw processes that have enough tags available to clean out the points. Mm -hmm. So I'm just not a fan of point systems period. If, if it just is going to turn into a 60, 90, you know, if you're lucky enough to live 90 years, you know, in Montana, you can start building points for your kid as soon as they're born or they got to be six months, I think, whatever, as soon as they can get an ALS number. So theoretically, if you had a kid and started building points right away and they lived to be 90, Montana could have a 90 point holder in the state if they never drew one of their limited entry tags. Mm. What you mentioned, we were just chatting prior offline about, and this is just an example of Colorado in essentially avoiding getting stuck in the middle of gray areas. And so going back to your point of you're a fan of point systems when there's tag opportunity, um, take Colorado and you were basically saying it, it's, you know, it's good to get a couple points or maybe three to five points um, in that territory. But the difference between say holding six points for deer and going for a trophy unit, you might require like 20 points for the really high trophy units. And that, that in between zone of call it six to 20 points. And you can clarify those numbers if you want. I'm using as an example, there's basically no point in hanging out there. Like it's better to get a few points um, and then kind of use those and call it three to six years of points. Um, just touch on that whole idea because I think that's one thing where maybe some guy, like I know a personal friend of mine who he just doesn't have a ton of hop hunting opportunity right now, but he knows he wants to down the road. And so he's been great about points and draws and like playing a long game strategy. But as you have talked about you could be wasting your time in some instances um so i know this might get difficult because we can talk about very specific states or scenarios where this does or doesn't apply but just anything that could help listeners on making sure they're understanding is is gaining points really benefiting me or should i be looking at using those points to create opportunities sooner 
Well, you mentioned Colorado. And again, that is a preference draw for deer and elk, right? So again, if you do not have enough points, there's a couple nuances for residents. Um, I'll, you know, the people love to catch us on podcasts like this and point out something that we overlooked, but there are a couple nuances for residents, but let's just assume that we're talking about this from a non-resident point of view. And we're talking about the most coveted tags. It's a preference draw. You're never going to get it if you don't have enough points. And I'll just use two quick examples. So in Elk Archery, Colorado, the unit two last year in 2020 took 28 points to draw. So if you didn't have 28 points, you weren't in that draw, period. Now, um, and then there's a handful, 201 and 10 took 27 and 26 points respectively, and then 61 took 23 points. Then it falls off pretty precipitously. I'll, I'll summarize here, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There were eight units in the entire state that took seven to 28 points to draw. Everything else could be drawn with six to zero points, plus the over-the-counter hunts. So the point I would make is <clears throat> if you're at nine, you know, if you're at six, it's probably time to try to draw a tag. It's not time to say, I'm going to stubbornly hang in and try to chase a 28 point unit that I'm never going to get. Mm -hmm. And then that, that was archery, but even like first rifle, which is highly regarded as, you know, the, the best tag opportunities, the unit 201 took 29 points and the, the top end units, one, two, three, The top 12 units took 13 to 29 points to draw. Everything else could be drawn with four to zero points. And I'm talking dozens of units. So, you know, you've got to understand what your strategy is and not just throw money at the problem and, you know, hang out in these weird no man's land uh, sort of point levels. Yeah. So, and that's true for elk or I mean deer as well. If I, if I gave you the deer numbers in Colorado, again, another preference draw, the top units take almost 30 years to draw. And the easiest hunts, the majority of the state can be drawn with, you know, four or five or less points. Mm. If I'm thinking out loud here, if more hunters started using points for opportunity and I, all I'm saying by that is like, yes, I'm going to hunt every two to five years versus waiting 10 plus years or 20 plus years for this coveted tag. If more guys started using their points, wouldn't that like lower the tide kind of on those higher end units because it's there's fewer guys holding out for that uh and it those tag allocations on those higher end units can start to become available at, at lower uh lower numbers of points is that a fair thought I'm not, i know that not everybody's going to do that but i'm just thinking if if more people were going for opportunity versus holding on to points for call it 20 plus years it seems like that would kind of lower the tide on things um, it, it, it would seem that way. The, the problem is the number of tags that we're talking that are available in those top units is so small from a non-resident point of view. I mean, for example, I use that 29 point example for unit 201 for early rifle in Colorado. There's only four non-resident permits available in the unit. Right. So, uh, you know, and then if you, if you work your way down, there's four, five, five, one, eight, four, we're talking about, you know, 20, 30 permits in the top 10 units total. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, it would, you know, it would reduce demand a little bit, but the problem is that it, it is a broken point system. You know, it, there's just way too much demand for way too small of a supply. Got it. So speaking of a broken system, I, I, uh, I feel like I'm 
trying to get you in trouble and I'm not. <laughs> but Steve and I wanted to talk about what you think the future might look like. Um, and again, I know you don't have a crystal ball. You can't predict the future, but it seems to me that as you just said, like some of these systems are just flat out broken. And so what do you think may happen to some of these systems? Do you think states are going to make some radical overhauls and changes? I mean, it's one of those situations where I think the system's broken, changes need to be made, but it puts guys like yourself personally um, who've been playing this game for a long time. It's like, what do you do with that? Like, it just, I don't understand the way to move forward. And I know you don't fully either. Uh, but obviously, you know a lot about the systems in each different states and maybe where some of these discussions have happened. And I'm just kind of curious what you foresee is what does 10 years from now look like? What does 20 years from now look like? Things like that. Yeah, I'm I'm hopeful that all these agencies are at least behind closed doors talking about this because clearly it's not sustainable, right? There's got to be an exit strategy to to revamp it or get rid of it. Yeah, no, and I think that they're I think they're terrified of two things, right? One, they're terrified of their resident constituency primarily. Um, you know, they're they're terrified that all of a sudden they rip the band-aid off and say no more points or your points don't count or we're gonna cap them or whatever the solution is. And their residents are gonna freak out because you know that's who that's who votes and pays taxes and who there's who's gonna yell and scream at them the loudest. Um, I think they're also to a certain extent scared of the non-residents, but they probably shouldn't be. Um, you know, what, what we have seen is the non-resident demand for opportunity, especially as our world shrinks effectively, both in terms of population, but also technology. I mean, technology has made us a much smaller world. Um, <clears throat> more people want to go adventuring, more people want to go hunting. And the sad thing is the, these state agencies could probably do anything they want to the non-residents. We've seen it lately in terms of price increases, allocations, terrible systems, um, and they still sell all their tags. So the reality is they probably ought to address it separately, non-residents versus residents to start with. And I'm, I would be victim number one, right? I've got 20-ish points in a whole bunch of states right now where I've been faithfully applying and waiting for that opportunity for two decades. But again, I've got kids. My kids will probably have kids, you know, this isn't about me at the end of the day. It really is about getting more people outdoors with opportunity. So yeah, I think that they're talking about it behind closed doors. They're talking about it in front of the doors more and more. And they're very, very broken in those really mature preference or hybrid draws. You know, they know that it's 30 points this year or last year for max sheep in Arizona. It's going to be 31 next year. It's just, you know what I mean? It's just a bad, bad deal right now. I mean, and obviously that how much revenue is the point system? I mean, imagine Wyoming's been getting, you know, a hundred something dollars from me every year for 10, 11, 12 years now. Like that's, that's gotta be a hard for them to turn that away. It's gotta be a lot of revenue for the, for the agencies. Well, that's the point. They wouldn't, they would just increase your other fees. You know, um, look at what Idaho did this year with non-resident archery permits. Your archery stamp costs $82 now. I mean, I was buying hunting licenses, non-resident hunting licenses for less than that when I started this. And Idaho's like, boom, we're going to drop a giant 
a non-resident license fee on you. Plus, oh, by the way, if you hunt with a bow, which I'm less successful with anyway, statistically, I'm going to penalize you even further, take another 82 bucks. The reality is that's what I'm saying. They could do whatever they want monetarily and structure wise. And the, the demand is still going to be there. Hmm. I'm not advocating that. I would love it if they got a little smarter, ran their business like I have to run my business. You know, um, <laughs> it's hey, the government over- though, that's not going to happen. <laughs> right, right. But I was like, hey, we're over budget. So instead of saying, okay, well, then let's just raise revenue by raising tags. Instead, it's like, are we running smart? Do we have too many, you know, of, of this type of biologist or this sort of support staff? But they don't do that. They just, you know, keep cruising on and raising prices. What do you think about, I mean, obviously there's been, you've seen it in Idaho this year and in other states are starting to to really cap the non-resident access to stuff. I think Idaho did the, um, all, how'd they do that? They allocated, you know, 10% or something like that and divide, like, divided it up so not everyone could apply for the same, you know, archery elk unit. Um, what, uh, what are you seeing there in, in certain states? Well, that's a super interesting equation because the other problem is, and I don't know if I'm just sounding like an old man in a rocking chair here, um, you know, on my soapbox, but these states tend to operate as if they're monopolies, right? And they're not in competition for non-resident dollars. And they're also not responsible for non-resident opportunity globally. Um, And so they don't play nice with each other. When Idaho did something like that, Colorado's over the counter tags are going to go through the roof. And then Colorado has the new problem. Um, and then Colorado will limit that. And eventually what it all boils down to is more and more states are going to cut more and more non-resident opportunity. You know, there's, there's bills afoot right now in Montana, Senate bill 143 was trying originally to set 60% of those 17,000 tags aside for outfitter only. So basically we're going to take 60% of the non-resident opportunity and force them to go with an outfitter and a hunting fool. And personally I'm pro outfitter, but I'm also pro market. I want the supply and demand to dictate the quantity of clients and the number of outfitters that the market bears. And so, you know, you've got States like Montana introducing legislation like that. You've got Idaho doing what they did this year, which was an absolute disaster for friends and family that were trying to hunt the same unit together. And they couldn't get it because they, they basically created a random draw for what they were calling over the counter capped quota tags. And so, you know, I don't know if you did it or not, but. I did. Yeah. As a non-resident, like I saw the, I saw the date change um, and knew that all that was happening, but like the fact that I tried to get on the website 15 minutes before tags went on sale and then basically was assigned a random number. I was like, whoa, you know, like that, that was not understood by me. And uh, yeah, as you just said, it's like, yes, theoretically, it's just first come first serve on a capped basis. But the way that they truly implemented that made it much more like a random draw. It 100% was a random draw because let's yeah. say, you know, me and my son wanted to go hunt Idaho uh, together. There was no way to party up. There's We both had to log in separately. And then Idaho might have issued me, you know, opportunity number 3,408 and him number 6,702. And by the time I got my tag, his that those tags were gone. So it was just, it was really egregious, but again, proved that the states can almost do whatever they want to non-residents. I just don't think they should. I think they should start asking themselves the question, how do I behave like a business who's in competition for the non-resident dollar? How do I create good opportunities for residents, first and foremost, as my stakeholders, but non-residents as well? 
And a lot of Idaho's complaint, here I am, I'm on my soapbox, careful guys. Um, <laughs> a lot of Idaho's complaints came legitimately from, you know, residents who were upset that, you know, the Pioneer Zone, the Diamond, well, Diamond Creek's been capped for a long time, but the Pioneer, the Limhi, the Beaverhead, some of the more popular archery only spots um, were just, you know, it was two to one non-residents to residents hunting those spots. But instead of you know, I feel like the states don't look at other states for inspiration. I mean, New Mexico has been doing a two season and even a three season archery system for as long as I've been alive and doing this thing. Um, and it works. It, they're shorter seasons, but the non-residents will still line up. And I was like, how about you just leave first and last week open to residents and make a two week non-resident only season in the middle of the season? You know, there's other ways to do this besides just stealing opportunity from fellow countrymen, I guess, at the end of the day. I feel like another unfair question, but this thought just came to mind. <laughs> um, is there any any way for you personally, or, and I could use you as like a figurehead of an example to like weigh in on that? Like, do you ever feel like the states reach out to the, call it the industry or anyone like that outside of their own agencies for ideas and for inspiration and Obviously, states do things like, you know, 100 feedback surveys and things like that. But when it comes to like expertise and like really someone like yourself is very well versed, like, is there any outside input, you know? Um, you know, every state runs it a little different, as you know, you know, like Utah uses rack committees to kind of make recommendations and, you know, um, others strictly rely on the game and fish commission. Some of them have more legislative influence than I think is good. I don't think legislative influence is a good idea in game and fish period. Um, because I think special interest takes over. I want my professionals to manage the fish and wildlife in my state. I don't want a Senator to manage it. And I'm just being blunt. Now I'm out on a limb with a saw. You guys are going <laughs> to, I might, I might be like, why did they ever say yes to this podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I might be looking for a job when this is done, but you know, again, it gets messy at that level, but bottom line is I think that it should be managed by professionals. I think we are starting to see a little bit of it. I was appreciative. We just had a, a really high profile outfitter. I won't use his name, but reached out from Montana Outfitters and Guides Association to us yesterday and said, hey, we know it's broken. We know that this legislation that's coming through or that's trying to go through with the you know 60% allocation for non-resident tags to have to go to outfitters is not a good system. You know, can we get together and present something back to the state that is a more meaningful and you know, fair draw and tag allocation process. I think we're going to see that open up. The, again, a, a lot of the, a lot of the systems, the way that information is uploaded to game and fish is set legislatively, you know, with comment periods and those kind of things. And they're clunky. I mean, we, it's 2021, you know, here I go, I'm really off the rails now, but you realize that the majority of states do not have mandatory harvest reporting. You know, Idaho does, right, Steve? Mm -hmm. uh, New Mexico does. Nevada does. You know, and, and trophy once-in-a-lifetime species in most states are mandatory reporting. But the majority of deer and elk that are killed on an annual basis aren't even reported back to game and fish in a formal manner. I did not know that. Yeah. I just always grew up in Idaho. It was mandatory. <laughs> yep. yeah. And it's a disaster. Why doesn't Montana – why do I get some retired – you know, dude, call me randomly and say, hey, did you hunt Idaho or hunt Montana this year? 
yes. And I answer a few questions. And then I get a retired lady that calls me from Montana. Hey, did you fish in Montana this year? Uh, and I answer a few random questions, but they miss the majority of the database, never picks that call up, never responds. I do it because I believe in the biological importance of it. But the fact that it's not a mandatory harvest report in 2021 with the technology that we have today blows my mind. And it's true in, in, in Arizona for species, like it's across the West, it's, a, it's an unhealthy disease that the game and fish agencies have allowed to perpetuate. Hmm. So they, yeah, you guys they could don't... probably build a website tomorrow that would create mandatory harvest reporting data collection in a meaningful way. It would be that simple. Yeah, so I mean, it's not like they don't know who's hunting. <laughs> I mean, they, no. they know who's purchasing the tag. They have their contact information. Most of that's been done online anyway. I mean, yeah, it could be a simple system. Yeah. So, I mean, that's step one. But then step two, tying into that technology, is that they're not using technology for appropriate forums for us to put together opportunities to make recommendation yet. I, I'm cautiously optimistic that these states will start recognizing the brokenness of their systems and start asking for help, asking for advice. Um, I, I just think it's, there's 20, we cover 20 plus different draw systems from Maine, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Pennsylvania, all the way over here to the West Coast and Alaska. We could be a big help at pulling best practices out of each of these states and saying, hey, here's what really works good in our opinion, and here's why, and here's what seems to really work terribly. Mm. So yeah. how are other states doing harvest statistics? I just always assumed it was mandatory that you, you know, are they just getting 60% of them and then making guesses from there? Yep. Sample sizes. No kidding. No, it's a disaster. Like I said, it drives us crazy here at Hunt and Fool. Because that's the other thing is, you know, we, we have other competitors that will report on, you know, those sort of things as if it's factual. And at the end of the day, it is factual in certain states like Idaho that says you're going to fill out your harvest report or you're not going to get a tag next year. But these other states, it's like at best, it's an educated guess. Like I said, I'm going to have everybody mad. All of hunting full constituents, <laughs> game and fish agencies. Um, well, I mean, I think it's, I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to have this podcast was to start having this discussion. I think there's things that need to be fixed and, and the system's clearly broken. Right. I mean, you can get in it and still play it now and take opportunities. But if you're concerned, you know, when you're 25 with no kids, you're pretty selfish. Now I'm 36 and I got two little kids and I want them to be able to hunt. And we need to start having that conversation. No, nope, that's the right questions to ask, in my opinion. And, and you know, the interesting not to beat this harvest report with a dead or with a stick, but the reality is, you know, Idaho has been doing it for well over 20 years. I can't remember you know, I, I got my first hunting license in Idaho. It's where I made my first harvest at age 12. I'm 48 now. So whatever that number is a lot, too, too many years. <laughs> um, I don't remember. I, I know somewhere in there, I remember when they introduced harvest reporting, but the point is, is this is well over two decades plus old. So old technology, Idaho made it happen. And right. today there's no excuse for people not to do it. Well, to, to transition, <laughs> maybe to something to less controversial or political or what, that's going to get you in less fire. Um, I'm just thinking of listeners out there. And again, maybe some of these guys are like still figuring out strategy and how to play the games and starting to look at non-resident opportunities, what have you. A good like high level place to start. Do you feel that that's just basically beginning to understand 
basically create some specific goals for yourself. And by specific, I mean timelines, species, opportunity, what have you. So instead of just randomly going, let me just get all these points or put in for all these draws and all these states, is it much more helpful to come up with a specific strategy that says something like, I want to go on a high country rifle mule deer hunt in five to seven years and have a reasonable opportunity of killing a 180 class buck. Like that's a very specific goal. And then based on that goal, you, you can begin to look at how do I create that opportunity? Is that a, is that a good mindset to be in? A hundred percent. I mean, that's exactly, and, and you're going to have to become more strategic over the next decade, not less. So you do need to ask those questions. You do need to kind of identify timelines and like experiences I try to encourage our newest members of Hunt and Fool, who the vast majority of whom come from the Midwest and you know not the West, right? Everybody in the West is, already knows who Hunt and Fool is. So we're mostly getting people from like Missouri or other places that are like, man, I want to go elk hunting. I tell people like that all the time, like set a goal for an, a type of experience you want to have. A 180 buck is one thing. Everybody wants that. It's another thing, like you said, more specifically, I want a high country muzzle loader deer hunt or something like that right or archery or so be weapon specific be experience specific be species specific i think that's super important because every hunt is so much different and will yield you different experiences as a result so that's one thing one thing i will say i'm going to go back and put my sales hat on real quick but i'm going to tell all your listeners about a free tool that hunt and fool has that nobody else has ever been able to create or has brought to the market yet if you go to huntandfool.com and look under the research tab, there's a, cast, a cost calculator there. Mm-hmm. Draw cost calculator. You click on that thing. Yes, we're going to steal some of your data. You're going to have to put your name and an email in there if you want to get your results emailed to you. But it's completely free and I'm not going to spam the crud out of you. But it's a great way to start because the one thing you didn't mention is budget. And it's expensive to apply out of state, period. And so to understand your budget and with the kind of constraints on it, I typically advise two things. One, I look at it annually, not, not individually. So like, I'm going to look at it like, okay, if I'm going to spend $600 a year investing in my point strategy, that's essentially a $50 a month budget. Now, granted, I might spend all 600 of that in a two month period, but I'm looking at it like annualized from a budget point of view. I'm investing $50 a month in a future hunting opportunity or opportunities. And so you can hop onto this cost calculator, be sure you fill out all the little boxes because it matters. If you're a resident of that state, your prices change. If you're a non-resident, if you're a youth, um, if you go points only versus actually applying for a tag, we have every box in there for a reason. So fill it out and it's gonna tell you exactly what it's gonna cost you to go chase the dreams that you have and it's free. So I would start there. I would definitely advise everybody on planet earth to be looking at that who's remotely interested in that and even experienced experts. Most of the people who, including myself, who have long-term strategies in place and spend a lot of time and energy every year applying for tags have no idea what it's really costing me because I don't ever, I almost don't want to put it. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. Some guys are like, no, I'm, I'm avoiding this tool at all costs and I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. <laughs> yes, I hear you. But, but that would be one place to start. And then, like I said, start centering your goals around experiences as opposed to just inches of antler. Um, those are important too. And we tell you all about that. And then, uh, and then, yeah, I think, you know, the one thing I didn't mention that Hunt and Fool does for our members, I mean, we have a few different membership styles, right? Our cheapest is like 48 bucks a year and it's all the digital tools. It's got the draws I've talked to you about. It's got 
the access to that member draw database. When you get lucky and draw tag, it's got a 3D mapping and, and planning program complete with filters, like want a 300 inch bull, blah, 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 all that stuff. And then all the way up to 150 bucks a year for all access, everything we include. But we have two styles of membership that involve personal consultation. I got nine guys here, including myself, that you can call in and ask the same questions that you guys are asking on these podcasts, all for your, you know, included in the cost of your annual membership. And we can help you put together a strategy around that. Awesome. The other thing I'd throw out too is just as a, a tool that I wanted to mention, and we'll link to the cost calculator as well as this tool um, in the description for the show. So guys, if you want to just click the link there, but this is super timely as you guys have one central resource that shows draw deadlines, which is really helpful to see state by state because we're right in the middle of it now. Um, some deadlines have happened. Some are coming up in, in weeks and months following. But if guys are hearing this conversation and haven't yet done some planning or put some apps in, um, yeah, it's just good to be aware of what's happening right now at this time of year. Yeah. No, we definitely try to be a one-stop shop for people to plug in, draw results, I mean, draw deadlines, even just the state fishing game links. It, it makes it a lot, lot nicer to have like a link tree um, to go to instead of going to searching Wyoming game and fish and then trying to find where do I actually look up my draw results? Where do I actually apply? You know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Perfect. Awesome. Well, Jared, it's been good. I, uh, I hope we didn't get you in too much trouble, but I certainly uh, appreciate the time and your openness and willingness to chat about some of this stuff. Oh, my pleasure. I really appreciate it too, guys. I actually had a great time. <laughs> thanks. Well, thanks for tuning in today, guys. Don't forget to check out the free resources from Hunting Fool by visiting the links in the show description. Best of luck to you in the draws and making plans for future adventures. Definitely reach out to us if there's anything we can help you with. You can send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. If you haven't yet, hit that subscribe button and you'll receive future episodes automatically. And we'll talk to you soon.